Its reading is from Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You may be seated. Good evening. My name is Andrew Meredith, and I am an elder in training uh, here at Grace, as Jason said before. I will be bringing you the word this evening. Um, I'm also a little bit under the weather, so if I at any point start sounding like Kermit or Smeagol, you'll have to bear with me. Uh, if my voice gives out entirely, then the sermon may just stop. Uh, our current sermon series is called Living Stones. Um, it comes from a passage, the, the actual title Living Stone comes from a passage in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. Uh, as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, um, we are, as living stones, are being molded and fitted together into a spiritual house, a temple standing as a testimony to the grace and faithfulness of God. God has been in the process of constructing his spiritual house from the dawn of time. And there are many living stones, faithful men and women who have come before us. Uh, so far in this series, we've looked at Adam and Eve, the founders of the human race, whose disobedience brought the catastrophe, um, sin and death into the world. Uh, immediately followed by God's gracious promise to someday undo what they had done. Over the last three weeks, we've seen man's sin and rebellion grow only more monstrous upon the earth, and the spiritual forces of darkness uh, permeate the evil mix until God has had enough, and he wipes the face of the earth clean as one would wipe a dinner plate. But Noah and his family found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and he keeps them safe within the ark and brings them through to dry land. As Jason covered just last week, God then recommissions humanity uh, in Noah to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth. Um, but Noah's descendants refuse. Instead, they do the opposite. Uh, they band together to build a city and a great tower to make a name for themselves. God comes down, he sees their disobedience, and confuses their language. Um, the building of the city is left off, and humanity disperses into the 70 nations over the face of the earth. These 70 nations are found just before the story of Babel. So far, the story has, for the most part, focused on all of humanity. Zooming in only here and there, uh, so that the reader can get a general gist, the general sense, for the largely negative overall progression. This is all about to change. For Genesis 12 marks the introduction of Abram, or as he will later be renamed, Abraham, the man of faith, the friend of God. Hmm. There we go. I use the word friend here very deliberately because the Bible does so. He is the only Old Testament saint that God calls friend. 
Moses comes close when God says that he speaks to Moses like one would speak to a friend. But Abraham is definitively called God's friend. For the rest of the story, from here until Revelation, the very end, God will specifically tie his, his very identity to Abraham and to the promises that he makes to him. I am the God of Abraham. It's not a stretch to say that from this point forward, the entire rest of scripture can be told as the story of how God is keeping the promises that he made to a friend. This evening, we will ex examine the first few faltering steps of this friendship, focusing especially on Abram's faith, and use this story to examine what faith is and how we can know if we have faith or not. It's no small task. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin? Heavenly Father, we confess that faith comes only by hearing truth proclaimed, that changed lives only come by hearing your promises and trusting you in them. Lord, open our ears this evening to hear and guide the thoughts of my mind and the words of my mouth so that I may proclaim truth. May my words tonight edify them and bring glory to you. In your son's name, amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with them, and we're actually going to turn to Genesis 11 to start off. So turn with them, Genesis 11. We'll begin in verse 27. Genesis 11, 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. And when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, we're faced with a rather stark intro here. Who was Abram? Just some facts we can pull from the text. He was the son of Terah, the grandson of Nahor, a descendant of Shem. Shem was one of Noah's more righteous sons, but his descendants have not fared any better. Uh, they haven't fared so well. According to Joshua 24.2, both Nahor and Terah worshipped other gods. So, Terah, so Abram did not grow up worshipping Yahweh, at least not exclusively. Abram was 75 years old around this time. We'll learn that from the next verse. About middle age at the time. You'll note here that people still lived a very long time, but the, the years were getting shorter. Um, and his wife Sarai was barren. Uh, he lived at a time when patriarchy which just means father rule, was the norm. 
Hence, he is sometimes referred to as the first patriarch. This would mean that he lived all of his 75 years in the house of his father and of his father's father, a house of generational idolatry. Now Yahweh said to Abram, first, you'll notice I'm using God's divine covenant name. I'm doing that for a very specific purpose. Anytime you see Lord, capital L-O-R-D in your text, you can insert the name Yahweh, as that is what is found in the original Hebrew. I'm deliberately doing so because, as I said, it is his covenant name. Um, it is his name of promise. Anytime God, God brings in covenant or promise, he uses his covenant name. It links him especially with his, with his relationship to his people. God is a more generic, transcendent name, but Yahweh is personal, and this story is very personal. Here, we see Yahweh speaking with Abram. A question. Did Abram know who Yahweh was? Maybe. Perhaps he grew up hearing about the God who flooded the world. Perhaps Yahweh was one of his father's gods, a god alongside many others. Perhaps Yahweh came to him just completely out of the blue. We don't know. The text doesn't say. Just Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So, leave your home, your family, your friends, the security of dwelling in the midst of your own people, and go be a wanderer in a strange land that I haven't indicated to you yet. Got it. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here, it's helpful to do a bit of a deeper dive into what Yahweh is promising to give to Abram. I will make of you a great nation. In light of the fact that Abram is nearing middle age and has a barren wife, this, problem, this promise is intriguing. It is a promise of physical descendants. I will make your name great. Don't gloss over this line. Jason gave a spoiler last week when he covered Babel, but why were the people building the city? They were building it to make a name for themselves. In fact, this promise is especially vivid when placed in light of what those who were building Babel sought. Babel was a city of rebellion. Those at Babel refused to disperse. When God... When God saves Noah and his family, he recommissions them to fill the earth, and the people at Babel say, no. No, we, we won't do that. They intentionally gather together, lest we be dispersed, is what they say. And you compare that with Abraham, or Abram. What, what he was told, go from your country. One gathers together, God sends Abram out. Faith in self versus faith in God's promises. Let us make a name for ourselves versus I will make you, your name great. An autonomous city versus a promised city. They were building a city with the abilities, standards, and aspirations of man. On the contrary, Hebrews 11, 8 through 10, 
says, I don't have the text, but I'll read it for you. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in a land, the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abram was looking forward in faith and obedience to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Those foundations are God's promises. It's also helpful to see this blessing in light of the circumstances. Humanity is cursed. The earth is cursed. The the ground is cursed. Human lives are getting shorter and shorter. There hasn't been a blessing since the days of Noah, and that quickly deteriorated into drunkenness and who knows what else with his sons. In this context, the promise of blessing, though somewhat undefined at this moment, is very significant. It's a turnaround of sorts. So much so that Paul, referring back to this promise, says, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. This promise to bless the nations is the gospel. It's carrying forth the promise of salvation. Despite appearances to the contrary, God has not abandoned his people. He has not abandoned his rebellious world, nor has he forgotten his promise to Adam and Eve. He is going to war with the serpent and with the seed of the serpent, and he is going to raise up a seed to crush Satan's head and undo what has been done. Abraham, specifically as the father of all those who have faith, and as the father of the physical line of the promised savior, uh, would be a key player in this struggle. Keep this in mind because we will come back to it later. So Yahweh promises to do for Abram what his wayward ancestors tried to do for themselves at Babel. Indeed, far more than what they were trying to do. In the end, all nations shall be blessed through him. Abram's part is to do the opposite of what they did at Babel. He is to go out. He is to leave the familiar, the comfortable, the safe, the home that he's had for 75 years, and be a pilgrim in an unknown land for the rest of his life. Did it drop a slide? Eh. I think I don't have a slide in there. So Abram went, as Yahweh had told him. Very next line. Abram believes Yahweh, and he goes. His belief in the promise is expressed in action. Why? Why does Abram trust and follow Yahweh, this voice? Regardless of whether Abram had heard of this God before, uh, Abram trusts him for the very same reason that we as followers of his son trust him today. We hear the promises of God and we believe them. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. That is, the word of Christ is the gospel. So, Abram heard the voice of God, he recognized the voice of his shepherd, and he followed him. 
The promise of his creator creates in him the conviction of things he could not physically see, as it says in Hebrews 11.1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And thus we read earlier in Galatians, as we read earlier in Galatians, Abram became the father of all who are of faith. Because without faith, like Abram's, it is impossible to please God. Let us continue on in the text. And I'm just going to make, we're going to go a lot faster than I've gone so far. And we're going to make brief comments as we go. So picking up in Genesis 12, verse 4. So Abram went, as Yahweh had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh, at the time the Canaanites were in the land. Then Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. This verse right here, from this time forward, this land will be called the promised land. Because of this verse right here, God is promising to Abram and his descendants to give them this land. So he built there an altar to Yahweh, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to Yahweh and called upon the name of Yahweh. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negeb. So, Abram travels from place to place within this land, and he builds altars to God in the places where he lives, and he calls upon the name of Yahweh, which we know from the godly line of Seth in Genesis 4 means that he worships the one true God. So here's what it means to have faith, to believe the promises of God, and the result of faith is that you do whatever it is God asks you to do, to trust and obey. And then to seek the one true God in worship as your provider. Abram is the model of faith. Some of you may be feeling discouraged right now, thinking, well, I don't have faith like that. I certainly have not left what is comfortable for me. God hasn't called you to that. Here's something you should know and that it might encourage you. Neither did Abram. Uh, despite his great start, he did not have rock-steady, superabundant faith either, at least not all the time. Like ours, it wavered, it ebbed, it flowed. Uh, oops, I lost my notes. With his circumstances. Uh, let's keep reading in the story. And you'll see what I mean. So we'll pick up verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land... So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. 
But Yahweh afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. There's a lot here, so I'll limit myself to just one side note, and then what's most relevant. First, side note. A famine causes God's people to take refuge in Egypt, where a crisis with the Egyptians befalls them, God inflicts great plagues on Egypt until the Egyptians drive his people away wealthier than when they came, thereby plundering the Egyptians. This is more than just a little bit of foreshadowing of some major events that will unfold later. To theologically modify a relevant Mark Twain quote, God doesn't repeat his mighty works in history, but he does rhyme them. Second, and more relevant, Abram is deliberately deceptive in this passage, hiding the fact that Sarai is his wife. Why did Abram lie? It's not a trick question. He says why himself. He thought the Egyptians were going to kill him. Didn't God promise to make of him a great nation? Wasn't his belief in that promise the reason why he left his home in the first place? But he doesn't have any children yet. We see here that Abram is doubting the promises that he acted on earlier. His faith is weak. It is inconsistent. Third, despite Abram's faithlessness, Yahweh upholds his, ends of the, his end of the promises anyway. He, God, is faithful to his promises, even when Abram is unfaithful. He blesses Abram with material goods and curses Abram's unaware enemies. Though it must be admitted here that Abram certainly isn't blessing anyone just yet. So, to summarize, Abram showed great faith one moment, great faithlessness the next, and yet God teaches Abram that he has the power to protect Abram from earthly powers and is faithful to do so. This concludes the first chapter of Abram's friendship with God. There is much more that will be said in the coming weeks, but I would like to turn now to exposition, focusing in especially on faith. So first, what is faith? Put simply, biblical faith is the open hand that receives the promises of God. Abram hears God's promise, he trusts the promise, and then his trust leads him to act on his belief. Only number two is properly called faith, but the other two are vital. First, we must hear and understand the promises. We can't believe what we don't know. Remember Romans 10.7, faith comes from hearing. If Abram doesn't hear, he doesn't go. Number two, we must appropriate the promises for ourselves. We receive them as true for us individually. This is faith. And three, we must live out from them. Our outward actions must conform themselves to our belief. In the second chapter of James' letter, he argues that those who profess faith in God but don't do anything with it don't actually have it. Concluding in verse 26, so James 2, verse 26, that faith without works is dead. If Abram hears the promise but doesn't go, he doesn't believe, no matter how much he may claim otherwise. The reason I'm stressing this is that there are many misconceptions about biblical faith, and they are all imbalances of these three actions. First, 
although we have to know the promises, there are those who measure faith entirely in knowledge and doctrine. Faith consists in knowing the promises, and because faith is tied to salvation, salvation then consists in being right, having perfect theology. This is orthodoxism. Orthodox means true or right opinion. It's salvation by being right. If this is your idea of faith, then you will either be insufferably arrogant, because you believe you figured it all out, or you'll be terribly insecure, because what if you're wrong? Or both, swinging back and forth like a pendulum. If this is you, if you believe that you are saved by being right, having perfect theology, every theological minutia will be defended to the hilt, every hill will be a hill to die on, everyone who disagrees with you will be a very threat to your salvation, an enemy. Do you know who has better theology than any of us? Demons. James says, you believe that God is one you do well, but even the demons believe and they shudder. The knowledge, even knowledge as, as fundamental as the oneness of God will not save you any more than knowing it saves the devil. That is, it won't save you at all. Is theology important? Yes. You will be hard-pressed to find anyone in this room who defends deep theological study more than I do. Uh, we are to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But do not confuse knowing about God with knowing God. Jesus said in, in his prayer to his Father, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We know him because he has given us his covenant promises. We believe them. It is because we know him and love him that we desire to grow in our knowledge of him. Second, I don't know why I put it all the way down there. Second, Although faith has to result in doing good works to be classified by James as alive, from the passage I just read, there are those who measure faith entirely in their doing, in obedience, thereby confusing faith with faithfulness. As good Protestants, we tend to know enough to say that we are not saved by good works, but we're still often functional legalists. We act as if our works save us, we fall into that old sin again and we think, I can't approach God right now. I've got to clean up myself first, or at least I've got to let some time pass, as if that's how it works. Put some more distance between ourselves and what we did. Or conversely, we think, I'm doing really well right now. So we confidently come to him feeling worthy. Either way, we're measuring our standing before God based on not or not based on our, his promises, but based on our obedience. Christian, you are still an, un, un, an unprofitable servant. Your obedience is your duty. It, it earns you no points. There is no merit to be had in doing what you are supposed to be doing anyway. Our obedience is an act of worship flowing out of our love for him. Third, Faith is, and this is the one that I find most often in, an even, in evangelical circles. We know that faith isn't knowing things. We know that faith isn't doing things. So 
we separate it completely from those two things, and faith is an enigma. It's kind of nebulous. It's a, we have faith in faith. We have a relationship with God, but apparently devoid of any concrete knowledge about him, and a relationship with the Lord of the universe that doesn't require us to do anything or actually change us in any noticeable way. But we still know from the scriptures that the concept of faith is, a, is of the utmost importance. A concept so vital can't just be left there. So faith gets measured, if not completely equated in some circles, with feelings. Our faith is measured by how close we feel to God at any particular moment. This then expresses itself in chasing spiritual highs. The next book, the next song, the next concert, the next conference the next getaway into nature, and on and on, etc. Our faith journey becomes an endless treadmill of constantly drumming up our emotions, and it is exhausting. Burnout in the evangelical world is real. Emotions are also fickle things. Sometimes I'm sad because I didn't sleep well last night, because my dumb dog was barking at a dumb deer in our backyard at three in the morning. When sermons get real, Or, I'm angry because I haven't eaten enough today. My point is that emotions are a terrible thing to base or measure your faith on. And then there is the problem that our faith, even when properly defined as the open hand that receives the promises of God, is often weak. Just see Abram's trip to Egypt. We, like him, trust imperfectly, and our acts of distrust seem to far outweigh our acts of faith, our acts of trust. So that can lead to the obvious question. Is the little faith we sometimes see in ourselves enough faith, especially when we compare ourselves to the giants of the faith, like Abram or the other heroes that we see in Hebrews 11? We look at what God asks Abram, and we honestly think, I don't know if I could do that. Do we have enough faith to be saved? A little bit of encouragement. It's not your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. If that object is Christ. I'll use an analogy here. I have two contrasting mental images to give you, and then we'll compare them. The first, first one, picture with me, Back to the dawn of human flight, to the wild world of da Vinci-like conceptual flying machines. A young inventor has just designed what he fully believes will allow him to fly. Wooden wing-like contraptions, one for each arm, that he carries to the top of the tallest tower in his small town. And with a crowd of curious onlookers gathered below, he straps one on each arm, steps to the edge, And with a vision in his head of soaring majestically through the air before landing triumphantly in the town square about a hundred yards off, he confidently leaps off the tower with his arms spread wide. Hold on to that image for a moment. Now to the modern day. On the east coast of America lives a little old lady who has never been on an airplane. The very thought of it fills her with fear. The height, the speed, the cramped quarters, the noise, the helplessness... All of that brings her to shaking just thinking about it. So it was a great surprise to all of her acquaintances when one day she bought for herself a commercial airline ticket to take her all the way out to the West Coast. Head down, shaking all over, she boards her plane. 
She sits in her seat while waves of fear and doubt wash over her. And while the engines roar and the plane starts gaining speed down the runway, she stares as hard as she can at the picture she's clutched in her trembling fingers of a new grandbaby just born in California. Comparison time. Which of the two had more faith? The inventor, the young inventor, had more faith. Which of the two had shorter to go? Once again, the inventor. He's only wanting to go 100 yards. She's wanting to go all the way across America. Which one makes it? The old woman. Why? Because it's not the size of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith. One barely had faith in a modern plane and will be holding her new grandbaby in a few hours. The other had overwhelming faith in the works of his hands and will be lucky if he survives. So, as we close, some points of application. First, to unbelievers, and even to some of you who may consider yourselves believers, but you aren't building your life on the, on the promises of God. To put this as gently as I can, your current trajectory can only end in a pile of broken wood and, pro- and broken bones at the bottom of the tower of career, health, beauty, financial security, romance, or whatever other tower of Babel you're building with your life. In this world of sin, suffering, and death, there is no hope outside of the promises of God, all of which find their fulfillment in Christ, in whom all the promises of God find their yes. The promise of forgiveness, freedom, and mercy in Christ stands today. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Today is the day of salvation. Be reconciled to God and build your life on his promises. Stop wasting it on empty endeavors that won't last. Second, to the faithful, those who do trust the promises of God. A mustard seed of living faith is all you need. It's true. But a true living faith desires to grow and not, just, and not stay weak forever. Grow your faith by leaning into the promises of God, by hearing them, by meditating on them, by speaking of them to your friends and family, by soaking your mind in them. Go to his word where you can read them for yourself. Hear the preaching and teaching of the word. Partake in the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, where the promises of God come alive to our taste, smell, sight, feel through his divinely ordained covenant signs. Allow the spirit to impress these means of grace on your heart and mind. You, Christian, are united to Christ in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. You have passed through the waters of judgment in the ark of his baptism. You, and you spiritually live through the nourishment of his body broken for you and his blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Trust his work, place your faith in it, for he is faithful, and all his promises are sure. As we close, I want to briefly reflect briefly on God's promises to Abram that we covered today. So one, go to a land that I will show you. Yahweh went ahead of Abram and met him in the promised land. Two, I will make of you a great nation. We will see throughout this series God's progressive fulfillment of this promise. Three, to your descendants, I will give this land. And he did. Four, I will bless you. Abram was blessed with both material and spiritual blessings. Five, I will make your name great. 
we are here talking about him three and a half thousand years later. I would say that God upheld that end, that promise. Six, I will bless those who bless you and all, all him who dishonor you, I will curse. We will continue to see the fulfillment of this promise as we move forward. And seven, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Turn with me to Revelation 7 and we'll pick up in verse 9. Revelation 7, verse 9. John is seeing a vision at this moment of heaven. What will be. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and, st- and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessed, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Right? Sovereign God, we recognize here tonight that nothing good dwells in us. But you are the God who calls into existence things that do not exist. As you called light into being, so you must speak into our hearts to call new life into being, or we are spiritually dead and without hope. Give us faith in you, Lord, and increase our faith so that we may not be half-hearted people, so that we may walk before you in full assurance of faith, secure in your covenant promises. In your son's name, amen.